Please pray with me. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Why do we take the bins out before bin day? Why vacuum before dinner guests arrive? And why take a brolly outside when rain is forecast? Because expectations shape behavior. It's easy to multiply examples. But expectations don't just shape our actions. They affect our feelings too. So there's joy before a wedding, nervousness before a job interview, and sorrow before a farewell. Our view of the future shapes how we act and feel in the present. Last Sunday, I quoted a poet named Anacreon, who mourned his lost youth and feared for his coming death. Why? Because death for him meant a shadowy, joyless existence in Hades. With such an expectation, his fear and tears were entirely rational. But as Christians, our expectation is far different. Easter Sunday proclaims that death isn't the final authority on human life. The risen Jesus is. Through the resurrection, Jesus is declared king, and he now holds the keys of death and Hades. We saw that last week in Psalm 16 and Acts. Because Jesus is king, we depend on him, delight in him, and look to him for deliverance. But deliverance from what? Uh, Good Friday, we know, is Forgiveness Day. The Apostle Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Jesus was cursed for our blessing, punished for our pardon, wounded for our healing. But what about Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day? We understand, we believe, we rejoice that Jesus is risen. But what does his resurrection mean for us? That's an important question. And we begin to answer it by recognizing that deliverance for the Christian is both now and future. Jesus said he would rise from death, and he did. Jesus also said he would return again, and so we should expect him to. Throughout the ages, as Christians have waited for Jesus to return, unsurprisingly, they've all died, every single one. Earlier this week, I did a Google search to find out who the oldest living person is today. Now, that person is a Japanese woman named uh, Kane Tanaka, who was born on the 2nd of January, 1903. She's 117 years old and still likes birthday cake. That means every human being who was born on or before the 1st of January, 1903, is dead. Every single one, Christians included, billions and billions of people. How does the resurrection of Jesus relate to all this? While on earth, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Today, we explore what that moment will be like, what our future deliverance, our resurrection will be like. That will help set our expectations to inform how we live now. My plan is to make three points about our resurrection and finish with a few words on Psalm 116. So let's begin. Firstly, the resurrection of the dead will be bodily. In this and the other two points, Jesus's resurrection is archetypal. That is, Jesus's resurrection is the pattern for our own. We know that Jesus became a flesh and blood human being in order to redeem flesh and blood human beings. And Jesus rose again bodily so that human beings might rise again bodily. Luke records that when Jesus appeared to his disciples after he had risen, they were startled and confused. Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul refers to Christ who has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, Jesus's resurrection anticipates a later mass event of human resurrections. And since his resurrection was bodily, ours will be too. But belief in bodily resurrection has been challenged now and then throughout history. The third century pagan philosopher Porphyry claimed that the soul, in order to be blessed, must escape connection with every kind of body. This highfalutin position holds that physical existence is inferior to spiritual existence. The soul, not the body, is the true self. It's built on the idea that matter, and especially the body, is a bad thing and should be rejected. But Christianity insists that the body is good and essential to our identity. After God had created the heavens, the earth, and all life, he looked and saw that it was very good. The all-seeing God didn't overlook our bodies when he saw and affirmed the goodness of his original creation. And the, resur the resurrection from the dead bodily affirms that God will restore his original creation. The early Christian church, recognizing the importance of bodily resurrection in the New Testament, made it an article of faith in the Apostles' Creed. And to avoid ambiguity, the original wording of the article is, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh. To deny a resurrection of the flesh is to deny the gospel. Pinch the skin between your thumb and index finger. And that flesh will be resurrected on the last day. And therefore, God is pro-bodies. And because God makes bodies and says they're good, we're to treat them with honor, dignity, and respect. This is comforting. 
especially when in the world there seems to be an unfair hierarchy of bodies. Uh, the late Australian poet Les Murray wrote a devastating sonnet on being at the beach. Here's some of it. Back in my 50s, fatter than I was then, I step on the sand, belch down slight horror to walk a wincing pit edge, waiting for the pistol shot, laughter. Murray goes on, equality is dressed neatly with mouth still shut. Bared body is not equal ever. Murray, who was teased at school for his weight, feels uneasy exposing his body to public view at the beach. Bared body is not equal ever, which is true because of course people compare bodies, valuing some more than others, the young, fit, flawless, beautiful body. For some people, too many perhaps, failure to inherit, achieve or maintain such a body can be crushing and depressing. But Christianity liberates us from such thinking. My body is good because God carefully and lovingly made it such. And what God carefully and lovingly made, he will redeem. Creation, the physical world, our bodies, these things are good. How might this change the way we view ourselves? People with disabilities, the environment, the resurrection invites us to see the world as God saw it, as good and yearning to be redeemed. Secondly, what will be resurrected is the same body. In his affliction, Job exclaims, although worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes behold, I and not another. The whole Bible teaches a resurrection of the body and a resurrection of the same body. In fact, to say resurrection of the same body is tautological. Resurrection by definition is the raising of the same body. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas is typically useful and precise here. He writes, we cannot call it resurrection unless the soul returns to the same body since resurrection is a second rising and the same thing rises that falls. And so resurrection regards the body which after death falls rather than the soul which after death lives. And consequently, if it's not the same body which the soul resumes, it will not be a resurrection, but rather the assuming of a new body. Uh, now, someone might reasonably ask, if God has the power to create a new body, why does he have to raise the old one? In other words, why is same body resurrection necessary? Uh, the answer's twofold. First, because the body you have now is an essential component of who you are. The Bible completely rejects the notion that the Bible isn't essential to the human being. The Bible insists that your body is a definitive part of who you are. We, were our soul to assume a new body, that would mean an essential part of us has been lost, which matters because of the other reason why same body resurrection is necessary, justice. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. When I sin, I sin with the body. When I do good, I do good with the body, because the whole self, body and soul, is involved in doing harm and in doing good. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. At the serpent's suggestion, Eve doubted God's word and with her body saw, took, ate and shared the fruit with her husband Adam. The sin was committed with the whole self, body and soul acting together. In the same way, we do good to others. This explains Jesus' approval of the righteous in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus approves those who fed the hungry, gave drinks to the thirsty, welcomed the stranger, clothed the needy, cared for the sick, visited the prisoner. In the language of the medieval church, these are called corporal works of mercy because they show care for the body. Our body then is the vehicle and object of both sin and love. This is why harsh words, a cold shoulder, violence, slamming the door and sexual, and, and sexual sin are so profoundly wrong and ugly. And this is why physical affection, listening, flowers, a car ride, a meal and other forms of care are so profoundly right and beautiful because our bodies are essential to who we are, our experience of the world and the way we live, how we use them matters profoundly to God. All of which should change the way we view each other. C.S. Lewis puts it so memorably, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. We will all meet again. Christians have nothing to fear from death. You, and not some unrecognizable version of you, will be raised. I, truly I, will be raised. Believing loved ones we farewelled and loved ones we ourselves leave in death, we will all meet again. This is comforting and comforting too and thrilling is what we will become. In Lewis's phrase, everlasting splendors. Because lastly, the resurrection entails our transformation. At the resurrection, we shall rise our very own body and soul united, but we shall be changed. To help us grasp this, Paul wrote the passage in Corinthians that was read. He writes, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. One theologian put it like this, the body is buried disfigured and loathsome, it will be raised beautiful. Why this transformation? To at last experience in our bodies the full victory of Jesus over death. You and I are mortal. 
and we experience the corruption of our bodies. Some of us feel it more acutely than others. Uh, the loss of hair, strength, energy, teeth, relationships, memory, mind, continence. All this is due to our mortality and it can be difficult to persevere through. I'm aware I say this as a younger person, but it won't be long before I too begin to age and decay sets in. Death and its corrupting power is the enemy. But death has been defeated by Jesus the victor. So when we die, as we all will, and return to the dust, we await a transformation. Paul writes, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible body must put on the incorruption and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the incorruptible puts on the incorruptible and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. At the resurrection of the dead, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be made like his glorious body. He will clothe us in immortality, bring us into his eternal kingdom and welcome us to his heavenly feast. That's the unshakable future of every Christian guaranteed by Jesus, the firstborn from among the dead. Friends, do you long for Jesus's return? Do you ache for his coming again? Uh, I must confess, I find I'm so often half-hearted in desiring this future. And if I'm honest, I think that's because I spend so little time meditating on it, thanking God for it, praying for it. But when I do pause and reflect and take it in, by God's kindness, I can begin to taste it and feel the rapture of that Christian who exclaims, O living joy, joy eternal and eternally blessed, joy without sorrow, joy above joy, joy exceeding all joy, without which there is no joy. We're expecting a glorious, fleshly future. So what sort of feelings and actions should this produce in us? Psalm 116 provides a simple answer, grateful service. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Gratitude, service. How can we conclude any other response in light of so great a salvation? But thankfulness and a glad will to serve cannot be forced or manufactured. They come from a realization of God's boundless goodness and mercy. 
I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Our future is glorious resurrection. Our present is grateful service. And so for our earthly life, we join in Augustine's prayer to God. You alone do I love. You alone I follow. You alone I seek. You alone am I prepared to serve. For you alone are justly Lord, and under your government do I desire to be. Amen.